Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. We're on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. We're also available on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And today, we have a very special episode because today we have a legend in our midst, Paul Soul's is a name you probably don't really recognize, but you'll know his voice because he starred as the original Spider-Man in the 1967 cartoon series. You know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. He's also acted and is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a way because he played Stanley Lieber, which, uh, funny enough, is the real name of Stan Lee, in The Incredible Hulk, the 2008 solo movie with Edward Norton. Uh, he first met Edward Norton on the score. It's the 2001 heist movie uh, with Robert De Niro, Marlon Brando. It's one of my favorite movies. Right now, he's starring on the CBC comedy web series My 90-Year-Old Roommate, But because this is a comic podcast, we're mostly going to focus on his work with the Marvel uh, spate of cartoons in the 60s. He was in Iron Man, Marvel superheroes. He was part of the company that put all those cartoons together. But uh, he told me off air that it started with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the original uh, claymation uh, Rudolph that comes on CBC every year because he played Hermie the Elf, the elf who wants to be a dentist. Uh, so, Paul, it's such an honor to have you in. As I was saying uh, to you before, I had been a big fan of the 1960s uh, Spider-Man because It had come on in reruns when I was growing up on YTV, and I used to watch it every day after school, even though I'm only about 31 years old, so I wasn't born when it originally came on. But before we get into all that now, I wanted to ask you, where were you born, and what was your early life like before 
you got into acting? Well, I'll, I'll leave out the uh, being beaten by my parents and school teachers and all the rest of it for now, although we might get to it later. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a joke. Uh, and it just occurred to me that I was abused by my school. I was born in Toronto here, and first residence was St. Clements Avenue, uh, west of Avenue Road, north of Eglinton. Uh, so I, my first school was, was St. Clements. My mother was a, a brilliant handwriting person, was asked to illustrate a textbook to show people proper, what you now call cursive mm-hmm. or handwriting. She had a beautiful, and it was used as an example of how you should write. And in grade five, stupidly young, a buddy of mine and I decided we would like to write a little note and excuse ourselves from class so we could go see the circus, which would have been on at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, not an arena anymore, but was then right. home of the Toronto Maple Leafs Hockey Club, etc. So we wrote this note. Could we please be excused to go and see him? It turned out that the teacher knew, of course, that my handwriting, which was awful, was not like my mother's because I signed my mother's name, and we got the strap. Yeah, because she so knew that's right why away. I bring it up about violence. Too long a story, but there it is. That's amazing. <clears throat> but I, I grew up in uh, I, I, around there. Then we moved to closer to go to Vaughn Road Collegiate, which, as we speak, is I think either now closed and will be demolished or closed forever or whatever. That's where I went to high school. Uh, had a, a very good time there, by and large. I was short, but I had a decent voice. And during the Second World War, being too young to go to war, we were 14, 13, I got to be a regimental sergeant major for our cadet corps. Wow. So I was to give the command to dismiss the battalion, which was being uh, inspected by the senior officers of the um, uh, Queen's Own Rifles and go and have tea with the officers and everything. Well, the, the cadet corps, 200 strong or whatever, on the command to uh, dismiss, gathered around me. They'd arranged this ahead of time, obviously. Gathered around me, removed my trousers, and left me standing there in an open uh, field, the uh, the playground of the uh, Von Roe Collegiate. Well, it's kind of quite the prank. It was, it was. And I ran home, got another pair of pants, came back just to see the officers leave. So I missed that. <laughs> oh, but that was part of my um, public broadcasting uh, career, Public career, I guess you could say. Wow, that's quite the start. But I had a good time at uh, at Vaughn Road. I, I liked it very much. That's awesome. So after high school, how did you get into acting? What made you think that you could be an actor? I, I, it's a good question. I think I was probably too nervy. But I'd always been interested in uh, my, my big amusement was perhaps less comic books, although I did enjoy them, as, as most normal kids did. But I was really uh, into the world of radio, which, because this was before television mm-hmm. uh, arrived, and that was a big source of amusement. That and the Saturday afternoon uh, going to the uh, uh, cinemas. Anybody who knows Toronto back in that time, or up until perhaps 10 or 20 years ago, knows the Eglinton Theater, which is a magnificent space. And a shining example of Art Deco design in architecture. It's still a remarkable feeling when you go into that theater. So what kind of movies did you watch? Whatever what? was first run at the time. Cool. What do you run on Saturday afternoons? They had, they had a travelogue. They had, um, a Western. They had a, um, serial. 
uh, and they had uh, two features. So for 10 cents or 11 cents, it was a great uh, afternoon outing. Popcorn was real good, too. Nice. What, uh, did you, what did you listen to on the radio? Okay, on the radio, certainly Sunday nights. That was the prime lineup. Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, oh. a ventriloquist and his dummy. Believe it, on radio, can you imagine? Mm-hmm. You, you know, you can't see them, so what's the point? However, people loved it. Jack Benny. Fred Allen uh, and um, Phil Harris. Uh, and then, if you were old enough and stay up uh, at nine, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation had a Sunday night hour or two-hour stage series in which the finest plays, dramas, everything from Shakespeare to the Greeks to pre- present day, that was Canada's National Theatre. Wow. It was the CBC stage on Sunday nights. That was a must. That was before I did any plays. And then during the week, Fibber McGee and Molly, uh, morning shows. Uh, did you listen the to Breakfast The Shadow Club. or Superman or any of Shadow, those? Shadow, uh, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. That was, uh, that was then. So that was our preoccupation, and I gravitated to that. Plus, and probably because... Sorry to go on so long here, but... No problem. It originated because my first cousin uh, was Bernard Cowan, who was a senior staff announcer at CBC. And an announcer in those days was an honorable and lovely position. Every radio station had them. uh, Networks had them. uh, And in public appearances, which they often did, these shows I just mentioned, were done in front of a live audience, and the announcer showed up with a tuxedo on. Wow. I mean, that's how important and formal it was. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Bunny was one of the premier announcers in the country, and uh, he had connections with all sorts of people uh, in Toronto, in the theater, and in radio nationwide. How much older was he than you? About four years or five, five years. Bunny was the eldest of, of this raft of first cousins in our family. There were uh, nine children. I'm sorry, 11 children okay. in my father's side of the family. And to this day, we still get together for Passover and Hanukkah celebrations. And there can be 100 people. That's awesome. Uh, a, a big, big family. Anyway, Bunny was... Um, an inspiration. He would take me occasionally down to the CBC studios when they were doing live shows. This was even before Bob Goulet, Robert Goulet, but still big names. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to go down to those studios, you know, it would be like going down to Broadway and watching the primetime people uh, at work. So I got interested in that. And then when I was at uh, UWO, Western, now called Western University. Then it was the University of Western Ontario. I, I had a uh, summer job in my second year there on a radio station in St. Thomas, and it was from, that was the start. I never looked back. What was the call sign of uh, the radio station in St. Thomas? CHLO, the voice of the Golden Acres. <laughs> nice, nice. Cool. So... I, I know that, that Bunny Cowan or Bernard Cowan, your cousin, was also part of that slate of actors. That well, I was going to say, if you don't mind, sorry to jump in. No problem. The very fact of the matter is he was the, he was the fountain that started it all. Okay. It was because of his ability to know all the good actors in, uh, in Toronto at the time, because of the CBC series uh, and existence, that 
the uh, two producers from NBC in New York, um, when they got the rights to the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer puppet animation show, came to Toronto to have the voice tracks done for two reasons. One, well, the same reason, but uh, it was well known around the world that Toronto had the best cadre of English-speaking actors, partly because our legs are half in England, half in the United States. We could do all of the dialects and accents from both countries. People who originated from England arrived here, plus are hearing the American radio. But as, uh, to be kind of um, definitive about it, don't take my word for it, Orson Welles knew about the quality of the actors here. And it was his recommendation that gave these guys the idea to come to Canada to have the voice tracks done here. Is it because, like, the CBC had such a great pedigree of, like, training uh, well, sure. people to do voice It was a national theater. Yeah. There was nothing else. It was small theaters across the country, but no professional theater, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was all semi-professional or amateur, created by the officer class of the British Army who, uh, you know, retired to southern Ontario. Everywhere from Montreal to uh, Windsor, uh, populated by uh, veterans of the various British campaigns, either wars or local skirmishes. And that officer class formed the basis of high society in southern Ontario. And from them, uh, they're the ones who sponsored what theater we had and local opera, music, etc. Wow. That, that's how it all started. Anyway, all to say, the other reason, perhaps the most important reason, that all these voice uh, shows and tracks were done in Toronto with Bunny's uh, direction. Uh, Bunny was uh, the nickname for Bernard Cowan. Right. Uh, were because not only did we have the talent, but we were cheap. You could get the day's work done very inexpensively, no residuals. We never made a nickel out of Spider-Man or Rudolph wow. after, after they had been recorded. And they went on to make millions for... The two producers. So it was like for hire, like you got your money and that was it. 50 cents for the gig and that was it. Wow. Crazy. It was. uh, And a a shame. And oddly enough, we got once, we got a payment of about 400 bucks once for Rudolph only because Billy Mae Richards, and that's B-I-L-L-I-E, a lady, Billy Mae Richards, stood well over four feet tall, as Groucho Marx would have said. Uh, was responsible for kind of approaching um, the two producers and saying, you know, it's about time you guys gave us something because you never have over the years and you've made millions. And they finally broke down and gave us 400 bucks once. Wow. So, But wh- nothing since <clears throat> and nothing from the beginning. So when so you mentioned that like Rudolph started it all. It was, it was for the recording of the Rudolph tracks. The, these two producers came here, engaged Bunny. Bunny got the actors. And from there, because it worked out well, people saw how well it worked out on Rudolph, that other producers started coming to Toronto and produced the tracks for a whole slew of cartoons, uh, Etc. That you alluded to earlier. Yeah, the the Marvel <clears throat> superheroes cartoons, right? With all the memorable theme songs. Well, um, you know, I, I I was Spider Man and Peter Parker, yeah. so that was fun. 
Did you change your voice at all yeah. to d- differentiate between Spider-Man and, and Peter Parker? And I'm, you know, I'm a little old, and you can hear the roughness in my voice and the uh, fact that it uh, gravels up a bit. Uh, I can't produce the sort of straight baritone mellifluousness, if you like, of a normal voice of a younger person. I mean, Spider-Man was, you know, I try. I didn't ever consider myself really a superhero. It was very hard to do that role. Peter Parker was easier. Peter was, you know, young guy, he's a photographer. He's just trying to please the boss. Gee, Mr. Jameson, you shouldn't fight with me or yell at me like that. And then there was the stern Spidey who was the superhero. Well, uh, those were the two voices, but um, they were easy to do at the time, although Spider-Man as a hero was hard for me to do uh, that I thought to be convincing. However, I gather it worked. You enjoyed them, and yeah. so have many other people. And that was right at the time that Marvel was in their Marvel age. All of right. these comics were coming out. They had, you know, they weren't timely comics anymore. They were Marvel comics. They were That's revolutionizing right. comics at the time because they had superheroes with personal problems, and Spider-Man was was one of those. So you were sort of in on the ground floor of that. I mean, this was the first cartoon that they did at the height of their creative output, I would Aaron, say. let me ask you, because this was the lore at the time for us. Okay. Not everybody um, approved of the fact that, for example, Peter Parker was a teenager. He had zits. He didn't have much luck with the girls. Uh, kind of a nerd. And people came to Stan Lee, who created it, and said, what's the matter with you? This guy, this character is not going to go anywhere. Look at him. He's a loser. Uh, and it turned out that Lee was right and everybody else was wrong. But at the time we recorded them, Aaron, nobody thought that this would have the legs it eventually turned out to have. So when you, I, I want to rewind a little bit. When you first got the call to be a part of uh, Bunny's company that he mm. put together, mm. what were you doing? And how did you feel when he came came to you and said, we want it's you a good, to do yes, this? It's a very fair and, and apt question. The fact of the matter is that everybody who was part of this company, and there was a sort of core of maybe a dozen, we all had day jobs or other things to do. This was, was playtime and a nice alternative source of income, but not. it wasn't our main salary or income it was a it was a hobby it was fun so what were you doing for your day job i had a job uh, which i got in 1962 with the cbc on television a show called take 30 i was on it for 16 years um, one of my four co-hosts eventually became governor general adrian clarkson adrian clarkson yeah i read about that yeah what was take 30 uh for those who never saw, i never saw take 30 what it was intended to be was twofold it was a training ground for promising producers writers talent and so forth that was on in the afternoon it was a mandate show by the cbc to help break in, educate, train people, as well as serve the general public in the afternoons, uh, housewives, people who were available only at that time of the day. Uh, And it it was a service to them that they may not have been able to get at night. So what were you producing? Like traffic news? No, it was was a current affairs program. But it had elements of politics, 
medicine, uh, the arts, food. Our chef, Madame Jeanne Benoit from Quebec, was at the time one of the most uh, accomplished and known culinary figures in the world. In fact, when she went to Paris, they gave her dinners. They honored her, honestly. And she was not a traditional stick-in-the-mud sort of person, you know. In fact, when Panasonic first introduced the microwave oven to the Western world and in Canada, they hired her to create recipes that would work in a microwave because nobody had ever had any experience with it. Wow. And she did. And I mean, talk about being uh, right in the vanguard, in the forefront of, of, of science and cuisine. And you had that person doing... Once a week on our program. Yeah, that's I crazy. mean, it couldn't have been nicer. That's amazing. So you were at Take 30, you were doing yeah. your stuff, yeah. you, you know, presenting uh, arts entertainment and... And, and we would be done by uh, 2, 3 in the afternoon. So the recording for the voice tracks for the cartoons mm-hmm. could be done later in the day. So when you got the call and he said, listen, we're doing, well, I guess first it was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yeah, that was one gig. Yeah. What did you, were you like, oh, just another gig kind of thing? Or? Almost, yeah. 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 Because as I say, like the the uh, comic book uh, voicings, uh, nobody thought uh, that Rudolph would last uh, 55 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was one gig. After the success of Rudolph, uh, and then Spider-Man was done, and all of the ones you have mentioned, and I know you could mention more, there was more work. It wasn't enough to be your full-time life, but it was sufficiently fun and an extra little source of income. So the whole time that you're doing these 60s cartoons, are you're on take 30 that Correct. whole, That's that whole my period of time. Yep. Awesome. So how when you're preparing for a role... For voiceover, mm. what what is the process like? How do you how do you decide you know how you're going to sound if you're going to play Hermie the Elf or you're going to yeah. play Spider Man or Peter Parker those sorts of things? Aaron, I can give you sort of uh, an answer and a half, and I hope it isn't disappointing. Part of the gift it's a gift. Yeah, I mean you you can study a lot at theater schools if you can and want to. Did you go to broadcasting no. school or anything? No. I was just about to explain. I think most actors will tell you, and good directors and so forth, this is a gift you have. You're born with it. Mm-hmm. I can't take any credit for it at all. It's a skill you have, as some people can play the piano very easily and brilliantly, uh, gifted athletes, surgeons, etc., these are qualities you are born with, and you, if you're lucky enough to run into somebody who sees your abilities and develops them in you or encourages you to go on in them, you're very lucky. And that was my situation, I think, true with almost all of the people I worked with. You have a job as an actor, and that is, I believe, to realize the intention of the author. What did the author have in mind? What was intended here? And... Because you can allow yourself the freedom to kind of give voice to your experiences, which are universal, hate, love, greed, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and allow yourself to just go and, and do it, the good writing will inspire that in you, and there's almost no big deal about finding them to p- portray. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm taking nothing away from... 
someone who I will admit to you I didn't much like when I was in my middle years. And today I realize that uh, this actor was genius and the, the very best that I think I've ever seen. Uh, and that's Meryl Streep. And she's on the opposite end of the spectrum because she went through training. At, at well, she, whatever she did or didn't, I yeah, think yeah. it was all in her. Yeah. And when you, to address your very good question, how, where do you find the voice? How do you create that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it literally make manifest that character. It comes from gifts you have and an innate ability to be empathetic to the human condition. You know, to be frightened, to be glad, to be sexy, to be uh, uh, beaten upon. All these universal human things uh, are already in you. You know what they are. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is let your your own abilities express them in your way. And in in most cases of people who are successful, uh, they are they have connected with those similar feelings in other people. So when you get a script... What do you have to go off of? And like, what what does it actually say? And right, let me let me I, I take your give point. me an example. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Rudolph. Now, I did this uh, little elf mm-hmm. that wanted to be a dentist. Now, I've had a very bad history all my life of dentistry. I hate them. I curl up in a ball. I I, I become catatonic. I hate pain, and I don't like. The pain from dental work. Neither do I. Oh, good. It's universal. Yeah. Anyway, and, and dentists know that. Uh, anyway, uh, he's he wants to be a dentist. He's also, you know, elves are not very tall, right? No. They're little people. Yeah. Being little people, their larynxes are shorter. That's why little kids have high voices. Okay. Because their larynx is not very big. Cool. Uh, that pitches the sound up. Yeah. Now. Here's a little guy. He has a strong feeling of what he'd like to be. He has been set aside or put aside, snubbed by all of his fellow workers, other elves. And he knows what it's like to be marginalized, to be slighted, to be insulted, to be a misfit, because that's one of the songs he sings. We're a couple of misfits, you know. Yeah. And... You, anybody who has, I don't think there's a soul alive who hasn't felt what it's like to be an outsider, mm-hmm. to be uh, different from the rest, etc. I, I certainly have. Everybody has in one way or another. And you just let that feeling, if you like, bubble up and the rest of it is in the words. And that's what I'm saying. If the writing is good as they've said in the theater, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Right. So you you rely on good writing, and any good actor just just thrills when they get a script where the writing is good, because it plays itself, because it's universal. Everything in Shakespeare is universal. The language may be a little clunky and awkward for some people, but what it's saying, people identify with. Otherwise, it would not have lasted for 400 plus years, right? Yeah, amazing. It's totally universal. Uh, It's not rocket science. It's just, and and I think most actors have a a pretty positive appreciation for good writing. 
you have to have like not everybody has that innate ability like you're saying to call upon their experiences. I, dis- and I disagree, that. Aaron. No? If you don't, if you don't mind me saying so, I've never really said this before. But okay, sure. I disagree because because of what we've just agreed on, and that is what works in in drama, theater, acting, whatever it may be, whether it's movies, radio. Uh, a stage show, whatever. It's still contact between a performer and a member of the audience. Right. That bond is direct and it's very powerful and very profound if the writing is good. Right. And the writing is can be called good or bad only by its truth, its veracity. So does that mean that like everybody has that in them? They just have to try. They and just have got, to try. It? Sometimes, yeah. For some, it's a matter of daring. To allow yourself to try it. That's why you hear directors, producers, stars in interviews on television, pods, whatever it is, uh, say, uh, well, you know, at, uh, early on in my career, I didn't have the nerve to kind of give it a shot. And you hear teachers and directors and producers saying, let yourself go. Mm-hmm. And the good directors can spot in, a, in an actor, if you like, the ability for that person to do it, and the director's job is to encourage you to let it out, mm-hmm. give it a shot, and, and it's only a matter of courage. Yeah, and and was it a different thing having someone in your family, your cousin, be the director, the one who was encouraging you? Well, actually, at this level, if I may say, the company that he gathered all these other actors, cartoon voices, had had universally in common. This ability to feel these things and express them right. without any inhibitions or uh, a worry about oh gee am I, uh, you know how hard it is for many many people to get up and make a public speech. You feel nervous. You feel exposed. You feel inadequate. Whatever. But we can all do it if we just give ourselves the authority to do it. Right. Uh, but was permission. it was it kind of odd to have to know your cousin in a professional context and then like have dinner with him later on? You know, as a family, did you have to sort of switch on and off how you thought of him in terms of no, professionalism? No, because, because fortunately, the professional relationship had its own vocabulary and set of rules and manners. Okay. I, I, I've met a lot of celebrities over my career. On that afternoon show, I did, did thousands of interviews with some pretty, pretty good people, some of whom would come... And Johnny Carson, bless his heart, would have told you the same thing. The good interviewers, interviews rather, occur when the celebrity comes to play. <laughs> Not, you know, to give their, their half of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're produ- uh, publicizing a movie, a book, whatever it may be, but they have come to play or there's a reason why they're there for an interview and if they just clam up there's no interview uh and sometimes it's a matter for the interviewer to make the atmosphere such that they can relax and give what they want to give and have to give or ask them questions that draw them exactly exactly that Mm -hmm. but the performer they're interviewing or the celebrity or whoever it is has to come to play too and the best example of that if anybody ever asked me who my favorite, you know, interview was with a celebrity, it would be Michael Caine. Oh, I love Michael he, Caine. I did an interview with him. I'm trying to remember. It wasn't for a particular thing. We did it in Hollywood. We went to Hollywood every so often and did a couple of weeks worth of, or a week's worth of interviews, seven, eight a day. 
And Kane was one of them. And he was gentlemanly, giving, funny, clearly capable of so many good things. He had a lot to say. And he had no qualms about sharing it and had a delight in that. Talk about humility. Because not everybody will admit to being nervous, feeling inadequate, whatever. I mean, his whole story is one of, he's the man who made the working-class accent in Britain okay. Yeah. Eh? Not the fine tune. Oh, I'm such a uh, 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 an aristocrat. <laughs> that was the standard English accent. Yeah. Michael Caine started with Alfie, uh, the film Alfie, uh, the opposite. Morris Micklethwaite, or something like that, is his real name. Wow, crazy. Uh, and- That's amazing. So, yeah, I, I, I love it because it's, it's, it's like I'm interviewing an interviewer because you, you, you have the same experience that I have. So, sure. so we can go toe-to-toe that yeah, way. Yeah. So I want to get back to a thing that I was addressing earlier about, about the superheroes and the Spider-Man and that sort of thing. As I said before, before I wound it back to just get a sense of how you got the call and that sort of thing, these cartoons were coming out at like the height of Marvel's popularity. They were, they were new. They were like the hot thing on the scene. But you said like, you know, wasn't well received necessarily from a from a super well, perspective. Only that there was skepticism, yeah. because it didn't, as you're correctly saying, didn't fit the mold of what everybody was was used to up to that point. Mm-hmm. So, and that was happening in the theater, was happening in movies, uh, everywhere. It was, was the start of the counterculture, of course. Mm-hmm. At the time, this is like a new thing that they're trying, these cartoons. Mm-hmm. It's it's right at the time that their comics are coming out. Did you at all feel the importance of that? Did did Marvel talk to you guys at all no. about what they wa- what they wanted or that sort of thing because th- this was all very experimental at the at the time. Well, them. I take your point and I'm sure your audience does too and understands from the standpoint of what had led up to this point, uh, this is a, a, a departure and quite a major step in a new direction. But it's still the universals. It's it's look. In, you asked me earlier, how do you find the voice? You look at the script. You come into the studio. Nobody's ever heard it before. Where do you? How do you make the voice for that? And it's it, it comes naturally out of the honesty of these situations. Peter Parker watched his uncle and aunt and the, and the, uh, the passing of his uncle. Mm-hmm. And um, his responses to that, his desire to make the world a better, more honorable place so these injustices wouldn't take place, that's a natural universal feeling right and he 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 made a mistake he he That's got right. the, he got the he power he was arrogant he felt the responsibility yeah. for his death mm-hmm. uh, and and he in his so his whole life was i've got to make it right i've got to make it up i've got to do do well to honor what i didn't honor enough mm-hmm. the easier universal uh, themes yeah. At the time, the idea of a superhero with personal problems mm-hmm. for you personally, I mean, you did say that you read comics a little bit as everybody did. Was that something that you, that you were into that you, that well, you I think everybody was at the time. Sure. Right. I mean, look, you know, and all, your audience knows that Superman was a Canadian creation. Yeah. In both the comic books and the, and films, Superman 
uh, Aquaman. These were all established comic books, and they were the ones we read and collected for our generation, for our time. Mm-hmm. And as you correctly say, here we are in a whole new world. I mean, in, in the English theater, there's a so-called kitchen sink theater, mm-hmm. working class stuff, uh, authors like Pinter, uh, etc. The studio in New York, Brando and his uh, group, Strasbourg, uh, yeah. but they were only re redoing the Russian Stanislavski method, mm-hmm. method actors. Everybody had their has their own sort of origins and and school from which they uh, find encouragement and and the technique to do what they do what they do. The point I'm trying to make is I think I'm sorry to be beating it no over the over the head is that it's either real or it isn't right. And if you as an actor or as an author or as a director are not tapping the the truth, the reality of this situation, and these un- these are universal. Mm-hmm. They have, as you've agreed earlier, that everybody feels them. And if they didn't, there nobody would go to the theater or pick up a magazine or read a book or go to a movie right. if there wasn't something in there that touched on what they either needed or enjoyed. And in the case of Peter Parker, it's sort of the the empathy and the feeling of the responsibility of having yeah, to of do course, something. Of course, of course, it wasn't it brilliant of. Stan and his and his team of illustrators to develop themes that gave voice. Uh, I used the line a little earlier. Gosh, Mister Jameson, you shouldn't be beating up on me. I'm a conscientious and, and sincere kid. Mm-hmm. Now everybody can identify that, whether you're a kid or a parent. Right? Don't beat up on my kid. I want to encourage him to be honorable and pleasant and uh, uh, helpful, a good citizen. Uh, kind, uh, generous. These are all the things we t- we hold as values. So, did you ever watch any of your performances? Did no. you ever watch any of the cartoons? No, I'm or afraid I'm a lot like uh, many actors, not all, but many who find it very hard to watch themselves, uh, their work. And there are some pretty big and important names uh, who feel that way. I believe. Um, <clears throat> Give my mind a, a little excuse for no problem. Choking. Um, Anthony uh, Hopkins. Right. Now, I believe he's one who will not go and watch so-called dailies or rushes or whatever uh, to see, you know, what you did and how, take any lessons from it. It's hard. It's I never credited, as I told you, credited myself with being a superhero. That was a hard voice to get or a delivery. So I maybe didn't give myself enough credit or any credit for being convincing. I didn't convince myself, right. is what I'm saying. But you played the role a long time and in other shows, too, like Marvel superheroes and that sort of thing, right? Well, uh, but again, you know, yeah. each had their own unique approach to the world and or, or their job. I did one series called Professor Kitzel and His Magic Machine. And it was part of the same company. It, it was again, Bunny, the same pool of actors, the uh, a different producer from uh, usually U- the U.S., where they did the... Tracks in Toronto, uh, animation would either be Italy or Japan. Animation, uh, puppet animation, stop motion would have been in Japan. Music from Italy, uh, you know, all over. Uh, and the uh, New York producer, there was a guy, and you should know his name. I'll bet you do. But I'm not uh, chastising. I'm saying, I'll bet you do know his name. Seamus Culhane. Okay. 
Does that name ring a bell? No, I thought you were going to say Ralph Bakshi because he well, he was involved in a, in in for a while, but right. as you know, in the production side. Yeah, you never but, got to see him. No, no. Seamus Culhane, we got to see because Seamus was in New York. I met him several times, and he came to Toronto often. It was a wonderful. New York, I went to grasp a little voice for Christ's sake, Paul, shape up. You didn't do that right. A wonderful character. But Seamus Culhane, look into your history of less books but cartoons. Okay. Seamus was a major animator developer in Hollywood wow. in the, I believe, the 30s, 40s, 50s. A Giant of a, of a man in the business. Mm-hmm. And he was there to vet our tracks, put them all together in his little uh, hut in New York, and he would send up uh, cartoon, uh, little voice tracks like that, just for the fun of it. When he, when he was saying, for Christ's sake, so you didn't do this. That was a joke. I mean, mm-hmm. it was needling, okay? Yeah. But Seamus is a, is a, a major figure in the animation uh, industry. A legend, and not everybody knows of him. When you were in the booth, did you get to perform to the animated drawings, or how did it work? The the process worked at that time. I don't know how they do it now. I don't think much different. It it, the director made his decisions based on the number of frames per second on the track. So the line that you had to deliver, there was a space of uh, let's say. 64 frames or 120 frames, uh, 24 frames per second. That's the standard speed or was of film. Today, there's no film. And that's a an adjustment I'm still finding hard to uh, get used to. Right. We, we have cameras now that are the size of a little 35 millimeter single lens reflex. And it's so ridiculous that the directors of photography, the guy who shot our uh, 90-year-old roommate and all that, today, these people, they don't have film. Right. They uh, they have these little tiny cameras. You don't even look through the viewfinder of the camera. Yeah, because the film is a, like a. You've got to have an electronic screen yeah. that plugs in that that shows you what your camera is taking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the recording device is not film. It's a little thing the size of a matchbox. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> storage storage for so many billions of bits. So uh, so when you were with this company, did you guys all perform in the booth together or separately? No, it was in a studio. Okay. No, no. I, it, it, only for Rudolph were we all together. Okay. Almost every other cartoon, you the, the term is slugged. Okay. You did the part on your own. I, we're, that's the way we work today. Unfortunately, I do a lot of... TV and and, uh, and um, series, mm-hmm. uh, children's uh, things, and it's just you in the studio, right? And the, and the writer uh, and producer. But because you were seeing these these uh, your co uh, voice actors over and over and over again, did you guys develop a relationship? Did you hang out? Did you not so much? No? Although we were conscious, I'm pretty sure. I don't mean to guild this at all but i think we were all pretty uh aware of the fact that we were in a kind of unique club our chapter of which was uh, had bonds mm-hmm. because we'd worked on these various things and and because i think we all respected each other's uh skills and abilities and and i'll tell you in the early days there were a few a few occasions where we were all in the studio together but for um for things like rudolph for example if you saw us in the studio doing these various tracks, 
we were like five-year-old children, crawling around on the floor, making gestures, faces, arms up in the air, like little kids, Mm -hmm. infants. Did it make it easier when you guys got to go into the studio together to play off of each other and and when, act when, together? When there was more than one of us, sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But that's the same as the theater. That's the same as film. Mm-hmm. If you have the other person there with you, that's what sparks surprise, excitement, terror, whatever. And I'll give you an example, if I can. Sure, uh, yeah, absolutely. Sort of, uh, tangentially. There's a tradition in film, feature films on down. Uh, where it's drama uh, or or comedy, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was doing The Incredible Hulk the second, we shot in Ancaster, Ontario. Yeah, this was the one with Edward Norton with, as with Bruce Edward Banner, Norton. right? Right. Okay. So I ran this uh, pizzeria called Stanley's, which Stanley, etc. Yeah, and you uh, played Stanley Lieber, which is right. his real name. So th- I interacted with, uh, with uh, Edward uh, and... Uh, on a f- Friday or a Saturday night, the days were very, very long, very long. And as you're probably aware of the lore, that film, I think, was at the time the most expensive film ever made. Yeah, I, I, I was living on Young and Gould right. at the time that it was filming. So I would see all the New York cabs and right. the right. and the helicopter crashes right. as they were getting ready for that big battle sure. scene between Abomination on, and... Sure, yeah. yeah. And we, all to say that we, we had a scene. He came to me at the end of the scene, but before my close-up shot was shot, and the other person is there, and they use... Shoot over his shoulder, show his one, perhaps one ear or whatever it is to include them in the scene. Uh, and Edward said, I've got to be at a wedding in California tomorrow. I wonder if you would mind if I was not here for your close up because it would be over his shoulder. Right. And the tradition is, of course, you would be there. That's what actors do. Because they have to react to you. To That's right. They're cool. Even, and sometimes even if you're not in the, the other person is not actually being seen. The fact is that you're there to make them have something real to react to. Mm-hmm. And he was a gentleman and a professional enough to say, I'll be here if you like. You bet. But if you could see your way clear, uh, I'd like to go to this wedding. Well, the very fact that he asked, of course... You couldn't turn him down. But that's the professional he is, and that's the lore of the interrelationship between performers, whether it's voice, film, stage, whatever. And do you think it's because of your experience working alone in the booth that you could pull something like that off without him? Oh, I wouldn't say no. Um, But in this particular case, it was not a big enough deal. Okay. You know, we're not doing uh, King Lear. Right. Uh, It's just... The Hulk. So, and you met Edward on the set of the score, right? Correct. Originally. Yeah. How did that relationship begin? And was it because of your relationship with Edward Norton that you got cast in in The Hulk? I'm afraid it was. Okay. Can you talk about that, meeting Edward Norton and and how you got into the score and that sort of thing? Well, no. the, The casting was done by a Montreal casting agent. I was still in Toronto. And... They submitted me, and I guess the producers, of course, because it was being shot in Montreal. Right. A lot of the financing, et cetera, et cetera, had to do with Canadian content. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure that's that's how I got the role. A, because they needed X number of Canadians, 
and they saw my record was good enough. One day we were shooting a scene in a kind of um, warehouse, and we were polishing the floors with a big electric. Uh, uh, Those floor like polisher. floor polisher yeah. things. They look like mini zambonis, sort of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we finished the scene. It's time for lunch. Finish that part of the scene. Edward comes over and he says, "I want you to meet my, my friend. Disposes uh, this is Salma Hayek." I, uh, yeah, of course it's Salma. Hayek. Yeah, sure. You're going around with Salma Hayek. Big. Oh yeah. Ha, ha, ha. Hello. Nice to meet you. Well, it was Salma Hayek. Wow. Now, she looked like. Uh, I don't think she'd be mad. She couldn't have been nicer. She was the sweetest thing. And this was all very fast. Right. He's leaving the set to go and have lunch in his trailer, and I'll be going somewhere else. But he m- made this introduction. Mm-hmm. I, I now cringe when I think of what a ninny I was to be doing that. But, I mean, the idea of this, you know, uh, angel sex symbol uh, being right two feet away and I was shaking her hand, was hard to believe. Mm-hmm. All to say, when the shooting was over, uh, I don't know why, but uh, Edward is a, is a very great professional and uh, something of a method actor. There's a scene in that film where I'm a supervisor of this warehouse and come to a, an electrical room with high-voltage equipment, and he's hiding in there. Yeah. And, he pulls me by the throat and slams me against this uh, uh, metal mesh uh, wall and puts a forty-five caliber revolver in, in my face. And we have a little scene, and he roughs me up a little bit. And I, he, I, he's known for, well, you saw Fight Club, yeah. so you know he's he makes no bones about doing it real, yeah. for real. yeah. Don't need a, uh, a stuntman with Norton. So I said to him, don't be afraid to slam me against the, I'll, I'll be all right. I know you'll, and so we can do this. And we did it 20 times. Wow. And each time, you know, he was careful and it worked, but it had that reality. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, when you've got a forty-five in your nose and Edward Norton is a foot away at his face 20 times, you get scared. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's real. So it comes on your face. and But that kind of connection Mm -hmm. is, of course, what A, what makes a professional and what makes the game so exciting. And like the thing. So exciting. The thing, too, is that scene is the first time that your character realizes that that he's not the developmentally challenged person that you've been working with. Absolutely right. Right? So. One of the things that I admire about Edward Norton, and particularly in that movie, was the switch yeah. from the developmentally Brilliant. challenged, and, and believable person to this menacing uh, robber heist. You're thief aware person. of the fact that he made his bones by doing a character like of of that type in on television. I uh, can't remember the name of the, the piece, but again, it was a dual role mm-hmm. in which he was a psycho, yeah, and like the the, uh, the score. He were two different personalities in the one mm-hmm. man. It was a brilliant piece of work. At the end of the film, as uh, when I left, he was into starting to collect CDs of major films. Oh, cool! This, uh, this we we shot it in, in two thousand. Came out in two thousand one, but we shot it in two thousand. And there was a store in Montreal that sold 
these famous pieces, and I got a, I got a f- film for him on CD uh, of um, Wages of Fear. Mm. Remember that film? Yeah, I about think so. the oil truck, uh, d- d- the dynamite truck that's driven in South America to an oil field yeah. to to explode and blow out a, a runaway well. Well, and the story is these these two drivers in this truck going through the jungle and almost dying. Oh. Uh, and this, as I say, this, this the availability of these films on a CD at the time was new, so I gave him one, and I don't think that hurt in uh, getting the nod for the uh, second Hulk film. And it seemed like in the score, you guys spent quite the time together. That's that's kind of why I asked because you're in it for the like. Don't sell yourself short. You're in it for the whole the whole movie, and you you get to discover. Uh, that he isn't who he says he is. And you're yeah, the but one it's who- still, the scenes themselves as played, it's just a fact, were in in their writing, in the doing of them, not that, there wasn't that much writing on them. Oh, uh, okay, It cool. was nice to be part of them. I came running down a stairway once with, with a camera in front of me going backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had to be guided back, going downstairs backwards, and I'm running down the stairs. Mm-hmm. And they opened the door. The door wasn't open far enough. I tripped, went on my ass, and they insisted I lay down and not get up, uh, you know, for safety's sake and yeah. all the rest of it. But uh, that was the only kind of dramatic thing that happened. What was Frank Oz? I was like just to about to say with? this. There was a rumor at the time that, or the lore was, that Marlon Brando was not getting along with Frank. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know what you know about Frank Oz. I know that he was big into the Muppets, one of the exactly. founders of the Muppets. That's right. He was Yoda on Star Wars. That's right. Well, as far as the Muppets concerned, when people in the crews would show up at the end of the day or whatever, they would always be bugging him to do the voices <laughs> of, uh, you know, the French, the Swiss chef or Swedish chef or yeah, Miss Piggy, Miss Piggy, all those things. I actually heard that Marlon Brando was calling him Miss Piggy on the oh well on, that's ridiculous on the set. I don't know about that. I can I'm only tell you this story because Frank Oz was trained by Jim Henson, mm-hmm. and they each could do the voices. So you'll never know in the actual show whether it was Jim or Frank doing them. Right. But all the crew and everybody who was meeting him for the first time wanted Frank to do these voices, and he was the nicest, most generous, encouraging, kindly fellow. Uh, and you sure didn't want to, I didn't want to disappoint him. He gave you so much encouragement. Mm-hmm. So the idea, if, if, if Brando couldn't get along with Oz, then Brando can't get along with anybody. Yeah. Because there's nobody more, I'm going to say, I use a silly word, lovable than, than Frank Oz. He even, I remember at the end of that uh, session in the electrical room. Mm-hmm. He sat me down in a kind of the empty area of the set and said, um, "Here, uh, let's roll for five ten minutes. React to this scene that uh, we'll possibly use it intercut it." Nothing had been written; it wasn't part of the script. He just left it to you to improvise and be yourself. Wow! Uh, and possibly create something for the. Uh, for the movie. Well, not many directors will do that to somebody they've never worked with before, who is not a nationally or internationally known star, as I was not. 
So that's the measure of a man, you know, uh, of a pro. Do you like being able to improvise when given the opportunity? Now, I, I never had all that much um, confidence. I did a, a, a show once, a live show. It was at the Tim Sims Playhouse down here at Second City. Okay. Great admirer of people who can improvise. Uh, with a Canadian producer, director named uh, Ian Ferguson. And he had this soap opera, improvised soap opera, that would uh, go once a week called Sin City. Wow. And he let me be part of his company. And it was it was wonderful fun and terrifying because the people I was working with were brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. We, and we might go back to that. But well, before I forget... I want to ask you, there, there's there's a few rumors and lore associated with the superhero cartoons that I, that I want to that I want to dispel and I, I want to hear your your opinion of them. One of them was we were talking about photography earlier and, and production mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. One of them was that they were so cheaply made that they would use scenes that had appeared in Rocket Robin Hood, which I think you were also in right you were also in rocket robin hood as well uh, but only as a bit player this is the thing about our, our acting right. company you who did a would do a lead in one series would be the bank robber the professor the uh detective whatever in another series yeah bit, it didn't matter player. like no. if you were spider-man in one that's it right. didn't matter status right. who cares that's right it's just a role i think i did some things in in uh, mm-hmm. in that but i i don't remember them vividly. well what i was what i was getting at is mm. there's always been this uh, rumor and i don't know if it's it's fact yet but that they would reuse scenes from rocket robin hood at least the background scenes and put them behind spider-man so that they could save money on the production costs of the of the animation aaron i don't know of that firsthand that i can confirm okay but i would say i wouldn't uh, wouldn't be surprised okay cool did you did you ever get to meet stan lee or any of the people that created the comics what was that like i did a show in 1979 or 80 called beyond reason I was the second host on it, and it was a show, a panel show with three specialists, a handwriting expert, a, a horoscope expert, etc. Mm-hmm. And each of these people tried to make get the identity of a guest. Oh. Who, of course, was hidden in a booth. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stan was on one show. Victor Borger was on a show, one of those series, Love and so was... Who wrote The Godfather? Oh, uh, Mario Puzo? Puzo oh. was on one. He could barely speak English. <laughs> so yeah, so that's the only time I ever met him. So when you met him, did he know that you were Spider-Man well, in the he original? Was told, but it, nothing was made of it. I mean, it was one of those things. He came in, he did the thing, he was gone. Yeah. You, you didn't go like, I was the spider I was the voice of Spider-Man. I'm sure he knew I was, but, uh, you know, it, in the, in that case... It was up to him to make the next step if uh, I'm not going to uh, – it's not that I didn't respect him, but I had no interest in following him around and fawning. Or yeah, anything. yeah, of course. Like when, when you're – Because it didn't mean as much to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. it does to yeah. people of your generation. Absolutely, absolutely. I've, I've been to a couple of Comic-Cons. Right. As a guest, right? Like yeah. Like the voice of Spider-Man. Science of Monographs and everything. And, you know, in the dual role of, of my – so-called notoriety of Rudolph and uh, Spider-Man. And in each case, it's easy 
to say that whatever I found or however I did it in those series or the others is that they had in common universals. Mm -hmm. This business, as we talked about earlier, we've all kind of felt marginalized or left out or in our life. That's a universal. We've all, it's a human experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the same with, uh, with Hermie. Right. But you get to be a superhero. Does that, the idea that like not many people get to be a hero, get to like save the day. Does that play into it a I little bit? Do I you get any say, hubris? I wish I could say that was thrilling. I, I I told you earlier, I never really quite admired my credibility as a superhero. Right, right. I enjoyed playing it yeah. because remember it's a cartoon. Yeah, and everything is outsized. Yeah, out larger than life, exaggerated to some degree. And the idea that you could do those things carries with it. I mean, you couldn't do them if you didn't have some kind of belief that you were capable of doing them. Right. But I never gave myself credit for thinking, yes, I could save the world and and will. (laughs) Uh, Nothing like that. Yeah. So I wanted to get back to that thing about sometimes you have the opportunity to do improv on rare occasions. I want to talk about your your current series on CBC well, that, Comedy. That is the that is the the, the my ninety year old roommate. Yeah. Uh, that's where you get to play this uh, grandfather who's living with his adult kind of good for nothing grandson, right? Right. So, do you get to improvise on that because it's a comedy? Because it's a web Almost series? Completely. Okay, how does that work? Well, it's a, it's a magic. <laughs> it, it it happened because uh, Ethan. And his team have put together a concept, at least for the first season, that worked beautifully. They cast it well. Our, you know, the gang of four uh, mall walkers, etc., that appear in some of the episodes, all capable, and all of the supporting players that they cast, first-rate improvisers. They have to be because there's not really a big script. Mm-hmm. There's a concept. Uh, the director and Josh uh, and um, Ethan and Josh, uh, you know, have a concept of how they want it to unfold. But the actual text, the dialogue, is very largely mostly made up. Like uh, sort of like curb your enthusiasm, where they have a right. framework exactly. and the dialogue that's is right. made up. That's right, and 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 there are several series like that now too. I think Louis C.K. has one. Yeah, Louis, one. for sure. Again, until I had done that thing with uh, uh, Ian Ferguson, I would never have had the nerve to try this. Right. Okay, cool. And ha- you've never been in a web series before? Like, it's very, like, new age. It's where we are in the current no, time. No, this is the very first. Yeah, and I've only really series. done one since, and it was a radio episode or uh, endeavor by Soul Pepper Theater in Toronto. Uh, I live near the Soul Pepper Theater. I, I live right. in the distillery. right. So it, it, it's a whole, it's a whole new world. Well, and unfortunately, yeah. uh, by virtue of its, I don't know what you would call it. There's very little in it for you in terms of money. Yeah, I guess because it's of its ethereal nature, and well, people don't uh, understand people it as can, much. Yeah, right. We're in a transition between old media That's and right. new media, so people don't know how to pay and, and the un- how to value that. And the unions don't really know how to evaluate it either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and see, you know, I mentioned earlier that part of the reason that the pool of talent was tapped here is because producers come in from all over the world, and we would work 
cheaper, and mm-hmm. the Canadian dollar is cheaper. So, you know, it's a it's a win win for them. But residuals, there's been almost no improvement in residuals in this country. We were late so, getting them, and it's still nothing. That brings up an interesting question because you have this huge legacy, and people like me fawning over you and that sort of thing. But you got very little money or recognition for it at That's the right. time. Right. So how do you feel? I mean, a lot of a lot of the people that you used to work with have have passed on of that company. How do you feel about it now that you have this? There's this legacy. Everybody respects what you do, and yet you never really got the recognition financially that maybe that equals the recognition that you're getting from fans and that sort of thing. Does it does it taint it at all? Do you think differently about it? You know, I no, not really. Uh, a, there's nothing you can do about it now, right? So I, uh, I, I'm not not bitterly, but I resolve in my own mind to say, look, I was born and raised here. What a lucky guy I've been to have been born and raised and had the experiences I've had in Canada. Uh, Stuff I would never have had otherwise. Uh, the the work, the notoriety to some degree now uh, is very satisfying. Right. Uh, so it's better to have done it than not. So do you, when you're getting older in this time of upheaval where you remember all the old, the things that are totally changing, how do you feel about it? Well, as you Do say, you feel uh, a pressure to keep up with the technology? Well, I, 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 there are some things I don't like to be left behind on, mm-hmm. um, but um, I think I can only put it to you this way. I'm now 86, and it happened awful fast. I didn't expect to be this old this quick. That's pretty universal, you know. So all I can say is I feel very, very lucky to have, have had... Uh, what I've had, and uh, not bitch about it, and and as all grandparents, I suppose, do worry about the future of their offspring and what the what the future holds, and the sadness that so many good things have been thrown out the, with the bathwater. Uh, that the, I mean, I don't want to be a downer here with you, but as a species. We sure as hell haven't learned anything important. It you pretty well have to go back to Aristotle or Socrates, and uh, who philosophized three thousand years ago. Human nature can't be improved. Don't bother trying to educate the public. Uh, good luck; it won't happen. Yeah, and you so to, what? Do, what can you do about it? I know, and you have to keep looking forward because dwelling on the past is sort of sometimes no. Can be depressing. But what you do have is the understanding that there was, in fact. And could have been an Eden. This planet could have been an Eden mm-hmm. in more than the biblical sense. Right. And we threw it away. We yeah. pissed all over it. And yeah. Because, um, I will mention no names, but because uh, we're not very bright. Yeah. Not, and collectively. People do things against their own self-interest all the, to- all the time, right? In the large. Yeah. Uh, uh, oligarchs. Billionaires, they don't work against their own interests. They just keep getting richer. Yeah. But I always satisfy myself with this silliness. If I were an oligarch or a billionaire, uh, a Walton, a Bill Gates, uh, Buffett, 
those less, but uh, the, uh, what do you call them, buccaneers, uh, billionaires who have brutally acquired their money mm -hmm. or have done so in a manner that's disadvantaged everybody else. Mm -hmm. Sooner or later, there's going to come a day <clears throat> where they're not going to be able to have a reliable source of fresh water, electricity, movies, fun, yachts, cars. Where are they going to get their electricity? I know. Yeah. Are they going to have to hire private armies to protect them? And what kind of a life will that be? Good luck, kiddo. Yeah. Shaft your neighbor, if you will. That's self-interest. That's free enterprise. That's great. Yeah. But sooner or later, ask yourself, who's going to supply the vital services to you? Forget you, your grandchildren, your right. children. Right. That's coming. Wow. That's, that's insane. And that's not, that's not terribly pleasant. On the one hand, to look forward to. On the other hand, it'll be a pleasure to be sitting and looking down and saying, you had it all, you threw it away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for your own legacy, how do you feel about it being Spider-Man and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Are you, are you proud of your body of work looking back? And uh, more, more, and I'm afraid I have to say, uh, I'm, I feel very blessed and lucky that I, I've had the opportunity to do as many things I've, as I've done for as long as I've done them. I came to Stratford, Ontario, for example, in 2001, and uh, I had four wonderful seasons there. Now, that was the, the pinnacle. You stand on that stage at the Stratford Shakespearean Festival once. I, I get, getting, chills now as I think about it. Talk about a privilege. Talk about a thrill. Talk about luck. Dear Lord. To have had that, why? how could I be anything but grateful? And to nothing beats the theater and, and the live audience night after night after night. But all these things have different rewards, and and that is one of them. Mm -hmm. And I've had, I've had that. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Paul... You're a legend in my mind, at least. You're very kind. And uh, I have to say, this has been a great conversation. I, I've, I've learned a lot. I, I feel like I've I've gotten to know you on a, on a deeper level. I hope our, our listeners have. And uh, I want to thank you for, for coming Not out and all, doing Aaron. this. This it's is amazing. very kind. There was a guy, a, a wonderful showbiz writer out west. We were shooting a film, uh, The Lotus Eaters, on the uh, British Columbia coast. And along comes this um, Terry, I think his name is, <laughs> wrote, wrote about show business for CBC. Okay. And uh, we greeted each other. And I said, hi, it's nice nice to see you. He says, it's nice to be seen. <laughs> I've always remembered that. And I think it's a great line. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, it, and it's So thanks to you for making me be seen. Yeah, I, I it's it's a privilege to me. I, you know, I this is going to live on the computer, I hope, into infinitum and people oh, wow. can people can go back and and listen to this conversation and remember you for all time. Thank you. But I'll uh, I'll echo Mel Brooks. You know, girls are better. <laughs> you know his 2,000-year-old man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the 2,000-year-old man. And, and Carl Reiner asked him, uh, how did you people discover sex? Oh, well, uh, Harry goes over there. He looks at the cave. He comes back. He says, you know something? There's girls in there. 
Nice. Ha, that, ha. That's girls are better. Yeah, There's for sure. That's a boy. That's a nice thing. Amazing. All right. So I guess we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. But don't forget, we have our listeners survey. We want to learn a little bit more about you guys. So go to tinyurl.com slash speechbubblepod and fill out the short survey. And that'll help us uh, bring better guests and have better a better podcast for you. Uh, don't forget to uh, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at SpeechBubblePod for both of those. And uh, subscribe on iTunes and visit us at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. We'll see you next time on SpeechBubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.